Can you hear my dog snoring, Gareth? Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. We are your lovely hosts, Gareth and Shannon. Good morning, Shannon. That, there was a couple of curveballs in there. We're lovely, and I got my name first. I feel like a marquee yeah, player. Yeah, I just suddenly. noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> Must How be because it's going? my birthday. I have to put. I have been going well. I um, have the day off today, so I'm looking forward to it. And I'm two coffees in, and I'm ready to get well of loneliness out into the world because I'm ready to read more books. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's your birthday. I wasn't going to mention it because I was thinking about you know the uh, the identity thieves. But I suppose, you know, it's a ballpark, isn't it? They're not to know. So happy birthday from uh, myself and our listeners. Uh, yeah, 29 today, as they say. Yes. Yeah, I'll Looking be turning 29 gorgeous. next year. It's all that skincare that I've been using. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you, you're going to go out and see the world today. Yes, I'm going to go to a winery and I'm also, oh, now that my car's been fixed because someone tried to hotwire my car on the weekend, so I've been dealing with that. Uh, That's been fun. Actually, interestingly, we got the new ignition box inserted into it and the guy who did it for us, amazing guy, he was telling us all the ways that he would have tried to hotwire and steal the car and how these guys shot themselves in the foot because they actually cut and destroyed the part that they needed to get the car. It's like, oh, wow, now I know how to go hotwire a car. Maybe I should go to attempt this trick. Yeah, you know, from a writing standpoint, understanding how to hotwire a car does feel important, doesn't it? Uh, And and same with lockpicking. I always thought I should be able to pick locks. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, um... I've been sort of working on a story that involves someone inadvertently building a bomb and blowing up a place uh, as though they don't um, they don't realize they're doing it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of I things as a writer the, you have to know. Exactly, I was going to say. I think that's the added advantage of being a writer. You essentially become a jack of all trades, master of none, because you have to have this understanding of all these different topics to be able to write about them well. Um, so here we go where I can hotwire a car, you can pick lock and create bombs. What are we going to do with all this knowledge, Gareth? Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's actually, I think a a really interesting point because I was reading, uh, in the paper yesterday or the day before, uh, it was basically an article about how men don't read books by women. It's a, it's a very, uh, odd phenomenon, I think. Uh, Now, my understanding is this is somewhat um, influenced by the fact that men read a lot of nonfiction. They don't read a lot of fiction because it's a bit girly, isn't it? So, so, you know, I guess that's one of the reasons. And so the nonfiction that they're reading, um, presumably they feel that a male voice is more appropriate to whatever the subject matter is, which I imagine is things like, I don't know, what do people read? Military history? How to Making money, a car. how to be a businessman, yeah. managers, leaders. I don't know. Yeah. Actually, that's odd, I do read a lot of nonfiction as well. Yeah, see, I don't. I just read fiction, like a big girly man. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, – and, and in fact, I generally read far more women authors than, than male authors, but there you go, uh, a bit of an outlier. But it is interesting, I think, because if you sort of imagine that, you know, uh, as an author, you you try to read about things to have a sense of them so that you can portray them accurately, it does seem very odd that one sex has so little interest in, uh, you know, in this sort of intellectual and emotional framework of the other. It's quite an odd phenomenon. 
I feel like and the, the article was basically, should boys be forced to read books by women? Which, uh, well, you know, I think the, the forced thing is a problem. Uh, what do you reckon? Should, should we be forcing these kids? Just going, here, take that Enid Blyton. Don't put it down. Is that? I don't think it should be forced, but I'm just thinking back to my days of when we were reading English literature back in school. I suppose all those older texts that have survived and are prescribed are mostly male texts. Uh, So maybe if you can change the school curriculum to include more famous women authors such as Radcliffe Hall, we wouldn't have this problem. Maybe that would work towards removing that stigma around female authors. I mean, I don't know what the article decided because it was hidden behind a paywall. So I read the first paragraph and went, how fascinating, and then and that was it. But um, what a what a smooth and elegant segue into uh, into today's topic. Well done, happy birthday, you. Well done. Uh, the well of loneliness. Yes, should it be a prescribed school text? I uh, I could see some sense in that myself. I think probably it's not the worst book for a teenager to read. Uh, and I would say it's a classic. I, I would say it's an important book, uh, important point in 20th century literature. That's that's going to be what I'm pushing this morning. Uh, but it's your book, so I'll leave it to you. Uh, what do you want to say about it to begin with? To begin with, I want to say, even though it was my book, I was highly encouraged by you, Gareth, to pick this book. And I want to say that because I remember when we jumped on our last podcast, I was raving about the book. I was so excited. I think I was maybe 100 to 150 pages in. We jumped off that podcast and I kept reading and the book kind of went downhill from there and kept going downhill from there. And it reminded me of when we did the Margaret Atwood podcast where she talks beautifully in her short story, Murder in the Dark. You have your beginning and you have your end. You you only have so many things you can choose. And then there's that middle. That's the best part. And I think that's where Radcliffe Hall kind of fell down a lot. Um, And to break it into a bit of perspective for everyone, the book is, the novel, is broken up into five different books. Book one, which covers those first 150 pages, ends with the death of Sir Philip, so her father, who was incredibly supportive of Stephen. And I have to apologise to the listeners and to you, Gareth. I've been reading her name in my head as Stephen, but Stephen, I will keep trying to stick to this name, uh, was very supportive of Stephen and was even looking and reading, trying to figure out what the anomaly was with his child. Um, so book one ends with Sir Philip's death, which uh, you said was an incredibly beautiful scene, Gareth. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that? so. Um, I should just point out at this point, always forget to say it, there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, book one, which is about a third of the book then. Um, yes. Is, yeah, I think it's really powerful. And, I mean, The Well of Loneliness in, in very brief is – uh, about a woman who feels that she possibly should have been born a man and the troubles that she has going through her life thereafter, or at least up to her middle age. Um, and, yeah, so the first, the first can, book can is... Can you hear my dog snoring, Gareth? No. I wish I could, though. Okay, all good. Yeah, pet snores are the best snores. Um, Okay. Yeah, so if, you know, because I'm having quite a bit of asthma this morning, so if you do hear wheezing, it's not me, it's the dog. It's like blaming, you know, it's like blaming your farts on the dog. Um, So anyways, yeah, so book one is is very effective. Um, And we go through... Uh, Stephen's war service, um, which I thought was really interesting, because I didn't realise women were on the front lines in the, during the Great War. So that was that was news. That to me. was in book four. Was that book four? Good God! Um, yes. So God knows what happens in books two and three, but uh, I mean, I thought the ending was quite powerful, uh, and, and the beginning I think is 
is great. And yeah, there is a section, there's a bit of the book, probably another 150 pages of it that feels skeletal. Uh, like she sort of got the bones in place, needed to flesh it out and sort of never quite did. So it has a lot of interesting information, but it possibly lacks some of the emotional engagement that's very much present in that first uh, book during her childhood. Would, would you agree with that or do you have a different take? I do agree with that. And just for the audience and the listeners, we've talked about book one, which is her childhood. Book two is the post-death of her father and then deals with her affair with Angela, an American woman who is married. And then book three is the move to Paris and the success and failure of her two books. And then book four is the war and falling in love with the main love interest, Mary Lewin. And then book five covers the success of her third book, The Rejection of Mary and Stephen from Society by a lady called Lady Macy and her daughter, and then reconnection with Martin and the stealing of Mary away. Spoilers alert, that was all spoilers. Um, But I just wanted to break down each of those books because each one of those books has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, And you mentioned that you found book five, the last, the ending to be a really strong and powerful ending. And in a sense it was, but to me that was the accumulation of all this, and I find it found it a bit on the nose, continuously throughout the book, Stephen is portrayed as a martyr. Woe is me. Why won't people accept me? I'm a great and honourable person, but no one accepts me in society. And then instead of taking that courage, which we see her as a child portraying, um, she seems to kind of give up and then portrays this white knight and says, Mary, you can't possibly be brave enough or courageous enough to live this life with me and essentially throws her in the arms of Martin, um, which I found really troubling. But again, I'm reading it from my space and time at the moment um, because Mary went to war with Stephen and she in her own right was a courageous character um, falling in love with Stephen and a few things happened, especially the rejection of Mary and her tastes when they get rejected by Lady Macy. But Mary goes through a kind of depressive state, which I think is a normal and acceptable state to go through when you're slightly different from the societal norm. And rather than letting Mary work through that, she's like, oh, you, you just can't handle it, so I'm going to take this decision for you. And you probably have a lot of thoughts on that. No, I agree with all of it, actually. Um, Mary Lewin as a character is not well-developed, in my opinion. It's one of the things yes. that, where the book sort of does feel very skeletal. Um, <clears throat> and for reasons that we'll go into later, um, Hall doesn't really flesh out their relationship in some of the ways that really needed to be fleshed out. Uh, and so in a sense, it's, it's, I mean, there are things about Mary that are appealing, but she is a very, uh, like Brockett, for example, the character of Brockett, uh, he is, um, not seen very kindly early on in the book. And then over time, uh, Stephen comes to realize you know, his, his merits as a, as a person. That's f- tremendously well done, in my opinion. The treatment of Brockett uh, has been criticised for being homophobic, which I think is quite quite funny, really, as a criticism. Uh, her attitudes towards him and his effeminate nature, I think, are very human. Like, you know, he is, in a sense, a reflection of her, Stephen, Um and she doesn't see it, and I think that's a very human thing. And 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 we share her point of view to an extent. Like I, oh, I did uh, in in the sense that I thought, yeah, what's this guy's? What's he up to? Um, not not because uh, not because of his homosexuality, but simply because she didn't trust him. Uh, and then, of course, over time, she comes to realise he's incredibly trustworthy. And certainly, out of all the characters in the book. Uh, Brockett would be my favorite. He's also the one that, um, and this is probably why he's my favorite. 
he reminded me a lot of me. I, <laughs> I was playing a game with some friends going, which character in the world of loneliness would you be? And I think, yeah, I'd be, I'd be Brockett. Um, I think his sort of world view. With your effeminate uh, hands? Yeah, well, you know, I do actually have very nice hands. I, uh, there was a time when uh, I pondered being a hand model, but, uh, you know, decided not to. Plus also I broke a finger and that didn't. That didn't help the hand modeling. But anyway, yeah, so I have nice soft hands and, you know, I've never done a day's work in my life. Uh, but Brockett, um, Brockett was a really true friend to Stephen um, and he imperiled their friendship a number of times to be loyal to her, uh, which I always think, you know, if you really care about a friend, sometimes you have to say things that could potentially endanger the friendship if they're not taken well. And yeah, I mean, he does that on two occasions and, uh, they are two turning points for Stephen where Stephen is not going in the right direction in life and Brockett kind of steers her around and gets her life going in a better direction. So yeah, I, I, I really like the character of Brockett. I think he's a cool dude. Uh, reminds me a little bit of, um, Joe Orton, the playwright, um, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I got this real Joe Orton vibe off him. Uh, and perhaps in a later podcast, we will maybe do a bit of talking about Joe Orton because he's a very interesting, very interesting guy who had a very unpleasant end. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think some of the criticism, the criticisms of the book that I've read in reviews have struck me as extremely odd. Um, and the other thing about Stephen is Stephen is a conservative. Stephen is rich, comes, you know, from, from the aristocracy. And one of the criticisms of Stephen is this in, intense conservatism and how much difficulty Stephen has balancing that against her, uh, her, you know, other nature. I actually think that's a strong part of the book. Um, and yeah, I don't understand why there's a criticism of that because people are not consistent in in general, and great characters in literature are rarely consistent. I mean, tragedy is often built on people driving towards a doomed outcome that you can see as a reader coming, and I, I think that very much applies to Stephen Gordon and her decision to make all the decisions all against her best interests. That is a really good way to put it. And the conservative thing, and I did read in another review is, and I you notice it in the book, she is a character of her time. She distrusts Brockett. She judges him for his feminine hands and his feminine ways, and yet she doesn't reflect on how she was judged for her masculine hands and her masculine ways upon her judgment of him. And even though she she terms herself an invert, which I think in our today and age we would term a transgender, um, apologies if I'm getting the terminologies wrong there, but even her, she has a conservative sense of, I'm a masculine female and therefore, and I want to marry and I want to provide safety and security to whom I love, but they will still, if we were to marry, they would portray the feminine role and I would be the masculine role. So she still was quite conservative on her thoughts on marriage as well. Yeah, very much so. And also in terms of what um, constitutes genuine lesbianism, um, I suppose, uh, and, and the masculinity that must necessarily be attached to that. These are all um, contemporary criticisms, <clears throat> but they were they were criticisms of the book at the time. I always think that's that's an interesting point to keep in mind that the flaws of the book that people today say are evident to a modern audience, not so much to an audience at the time. This is not not true. Uh, we'll look a bit at that. Uh, in a bit, but um, <clears throat> so the book became notorious because of a campaign um, by uh, James Douglas. I can't remember. Oh, it's the Sunday Express. So James Douglas um, really got a bee in his bonnet about this book, 
and uh, he worked very hard to have it censored and he achieved that. And the book was banned in England until I believe 1949. So it was written in 1928. It was was banned for 21. Uh, Published in 1928. What did I say? Written in 1928. I think oh, she started pardon. writing it yeah. in 1926. Indeed. Uh, and actually, yeah. So, I mean, Hall had, she had success with Adam's Breed, which um, was her fourth novel, I believe. Um, there's another interesting thing in writing. You'll see it again and again and again. Fourth novels take off. So if you're an aspiring writer, just assume the first three might be a bit ropey. Wait for your fourth, though. That's what hmm. really happens. good example of that is uh, John Irving with The World According to Garp. The first three did okay, and then that was an explosive success. Um, so, yeah, she, she wrote Adam's Breed. It won some awards, and, and at that point, Hall was being sort of touted as, you know, one of the great uh, writers of the time. And so that's something to keep in mind too because people uh, make a lot of saying she's not a very good writer, she's not a very accomplished writer. I don't think any of that's correct. Um, um, I was just going to mention the two awards that she won for Adam's Breed. It was the James Tate Black Memorial Prize yep. and the Femina V. Harus Prize for the Best English Novel. So very accomplished writer. Yeah. Yeah, and it sold a lot of copies, Adam's Breed. It's actually one I'd be really interested in reading. Again, it's about a character who, in a sense, suffers. So this is something that Hall is interested in as a writer. Now, there's a scene in uh, in The Well of Loneliness where uh, I believe he's an elderly gentleman comes up and sits down next to Stephen when she's in a sort of a dive bar that she's not liking at all. And says, you know, you you have a platform to change the world, make it start spinning a little differently. And I wonder if that actually did happen to Radcliffe Hall at some point. It's it's an amazing scene in the book, it must be said. He appears almost like a ghost and then disappears again. But she uh, she actually had that quote. Can I read it? Please, yes. Yeah, that'd be great. You're neither unnatural nor abominable nor mad. You're as much a part of what people call nature as anyone else, only you're unexplained as yet. You've not got your niche in creation. But someday that will come, and meanwhile, don't shrink from yourself, but face yourself calmly and bravely. Have courage. Do the best you can with your burden. But above all, be honourable. Cling to your honour for the sake of those who share the same burden. For their sakes, show the world that people like you and they can be quite as selfless and fine as the rest of mankind. Let your life go to prove this. It would be a really great life work, Stephen. Yeah, and I, I sort of wonder if this is, I mean, it could have been a dream. It could have been a lot of things. But I do wonder if she, if uh, Radcliffe Hall had a similar uh, experience because suddenly she was hell-bent on writing this book. And I think one of the... Uh, things that has to be remembered about this book is that it was not edited by anyone other than Hall herself. So it reads like a book that hasn't been edited. It has some unfortunate bits of repetition that probably aren't useful. Um, It's not tremendously well balanced across the five books that make it up. Uh, And that's difficult for readers. You know, when work gets more or less dense, you get into the rhythm of a writer and when that rhythm keeps shifting, that does make it harder. And people say that, you know, books uh, three and four are quite hard to read, quite, you know, take a bit of working through. And the funny thing is they're quite short. Um, so you'd sort of think they wouldn't be that much of an ordeal. But when you constantly have to shift that rhythm as a reader, it is it is quite difficult. And, and so the book would have benefited from an editor, uh, and, and But I think it's worth remembering that Hall felt, and I think she was correct, that the interest in the book was much more about the subject matter than the writing. Uh, she had a number, she had two big publishers pass on it in the first instance. The third one agreed to publish it. I think it was James Knopf, but I'm not sure. Uh, and she said to them, I don't want you to change a word. Put it out as it is. Um, 
you know, uh, now I think what she was concerned about with editing is that certain themes and ideas would be edited out rather than the writing would be polished up. Um, and who's to say she wasn't right? I think there was a sort of a sense by some of the, the publishing industry that this was a fun sort of grotesquerie that, that could sort of cause some scandal and, and get some sales, and certainly it did. She was trying to write a book that was not that, and I think she succeeded in that, maybe succeeded almost too much in doing that. But I think when you, when you, when you judge the book, it's, it's very unfair to see it out of that context. I, I think she really did think she couldn't be edited. Um, and so when you're judging it against books that were edited, went through many sets of um, accomplished eyes, you know, it's, it's apples and oranges. So, so I always think it's worth cutting us some slack about the shape of the writing because at the time it was a really difficult topic to talk about and to write about seriously and sympathetically. Uh, and certainly James Douglas was deeply offended. And I, I think it's really interesting what he wrote. I just wanted to read you a little bit. He bangs on forever. So I'm, I'm cutting out, as a good editor should, about 80% of what he wrote. Uh, so, quote, they declare that they – now, when, sorry, begging your pardon. He's talking about um, Jonathan Cape, it was not enough. Jonathan Cape. Um, the publisher. So Jonathan Cape declares that they have been deeply impressed by this study. They have felt that such a book should not be lost to those who may be willing and able to understand and appreciate it. They believe that the authors treated the subject in such a way as to combine perfect frankness and sincerity with delicacy and deep psychological insight. That is the defense and justification of what I regard as an intolerable outrage, the first outrage of the kind in the annals of English fiction. The defense is wholly unconvincing. The justification absolutely fails. In order to prevent the contamination and corruption of English fiction, it is the duty of the critic to make it impossible for any other novelist to repeat this outrage. I say deliberately that this novel is not fit to be sold by any bookseller or to be borrowed from any library. Now, I don't think Douglas was a great intellect. He, um, in the same article, he talks about how she repeats the, the crimes of Oscar Wilde. So apparently this outrage has occurred before. But anyway, he bangs on. The answer is that the adroitness and cleverness of the book intensifies its moral danger. It is a seductive and insidious piece of special pleading designed to display perverted decadence as a martyrdom inflicted upon these outcasts by a cruel society. It flings a veil of sentiment over their depravity. It even suggests that their self-made debasement is unavoidable because they cannot save themselves. I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a vial of prussic acid than this novel. Poison kills the body moral poison kills the soul. What then is to be done? The book must at once be withdrawn. I hope the author and the publishers will realise that they have made a, great mis a grave mistake and will, without delay, do all in their power to repair it. Anyway, he didn't, um, he didn't wait for that to happen. He pushed forward and it went to court and, and the book got banned in England for 21 years. Uh, and Hall didn't live to see it unbanned, which I think for her was a big blow because she was very much an, an English an English person. Uh, so although the book did very well in France and, and Germany, where, as Douglas points out, the battle has already been lost, the moral decay has already set in in those countries, uh, and in America, uh, it sold very well in America because it was banned in the UK, um, uh, so, yeah, I, I think she would have struggled with the fact that it, it was banned in the UK. I, th I don't think the other markets would have been that much of a solace to her because Radcliffe Hall really was a very kind of conservative English citizen. And I think it's a shame that because she wrote two books after The Well of Loneliness, which no one, I don't think I've heard anyone 
talk about them. So she wrote The Master of the House in 1932 and then The Sixth Beautitude in 1936. And then Adams Breed was the one that won all these awards. And yet everyone knows Radcliffe Hall only for this book, only because it was banned under the Obscenity Act, which I think is a real shame. Real shame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the book, The Master of the House, was uh, a religious book. It was about she, uh, but people did buy it at the time, thinking that it would be another book about the same subject as The Well of Loneliness. So they felt tremendously cheated when they read this quite doer study of, yeah. of religious feeling. Um, and yeah, certainly being uh, respectable really mattered to Hall. Uh, and you don't have to share that sentiment. Like, you know, I, I can't say I spent a lot of time worrying about how respectable I am. But that was one of her drives. And so to criticize her for that, it's, it's kind of a bit nuts. Like, I mean, it's what's on the box, if you like. It's also on the label with Radcliffe Hall. And she was dealing with how to be an, uh, a respectable person when you're not uh, a conformist. I think that's a fascinating thing. I think that that extends far beyond queer fiction into, you know, an important moment in English literature. I think the book is a classic. It's a flawed classic, but I think it should be understood for its merits, uh, not for often what people see as a reflection of themselves in it. I think that touches on an interesting point, and it's one that, this book is so fascinating because we talk about judging it on its merit. So this book has been judged on its subject matter, which is homosexuality or inversion, as they called it at the time, but also judging it on its writing, so its literary merit. And from my standpoint, I think that I don't have an issue with the subject matter, which back then a lot of people did, but a lot of people spoke highly of its literary merit, so its writing, which I do have an issue with also acknowledging that this was an unedited book, so I will give Radcliffe Hall slack on that. Um, and I, my thoughts on the novel are quite close to um, a New Statesman article written by Cyril Connolly back in 1928, and this is before the book, uh, before James Douglas got that bee in his bonnet and wanted to ban it. So these reviews the also, is, sorry, I just thought as, know, a, yeah. as a preface, these reviews are all included in a book called uh, Palatable Poison. Uh, and that's actually where I got the James Douglas diatribe from as well. Really interesting book that sort of frames uh, – how the book was received at the time, because that is something that is sort of misunderstood now, I think. Yeah, it is a very good book on it. And um, I've lost my train of thought, so I'm just going to jump into the quote that I was going to read. Quote, the book is really a chronicle of the misfortunes of the invert, but since it assumes the invert to be born an invert and condemned beyond all hope of cure to remain one, it can hardly be said to point a moral of any kind. It is presumably a plea for greater tolerance, but the world is perfectly prepared to tolerate the invert if the invert will only make concessions to the world. Most of us are resigned to the doctrine of homosexuals that they alone possess all the greatest heroes and all the finer feelings, but it is surely preposterous that they should claim a right not only to the mark of Cain, but to the martyr's crown. The tragedy of Stephen Gordon, the heroine of this book, is not really that of inversion, but of genius. But if of genius, it is that of any sensitive, artistic, religious, religious and uncompromising human being who refuses to adapt herself to the conditions of life. And I have cut this down as well. And he kind of concludes quite nicely, and I have similar thoughts on it. Quote, The Well of Loneliness may be a brave book to have written, but let us hope it will pave the way for someone to write a better. Homosexuality is, 
after all, as rich in comedy as in tragedy, and it is time it was emancipated for, from the aura of distinguished damnation and religious martyrdom which surrounds its so fiercely aggressive apologists. End quote. Yeah, I mean, um, I, what do you, so I would agree that with that last bit. Uh, but I don't think it's true. Uh, the point, the point that I have an issue with is the martyr, martyrdom aspect of this book, and I, I think we talked about this before we started recording, Gareth. I found it, I find it a bit on the nose, um, and I was researching for the podcast that Saint Stephen was actually the first Christian saint recognized and he was a christian deacon in jerusalem and the first christian martyr for his defense of his faith before the rabbinic court arranged his enraged his jewish audience and he was taken out of the city and stoned to death um and back to the quote from cyril it's this concept that and actually i want to get a quote from the book which i think talks about this really nicely um, so a quote from the book which Radcliffe Hall has written um, about her time growing up, and this is from book one, and the society that she lived in back in Wharton. In her they instinctively sense an outlaw and theirs was the task of policing nature. What I get from this is that society has its rules, it has its norms, and you're going to find outlaws in whatever direction that you decide to go in, that does not follow the norm. In her case, she's an invert. She has different sexual preferences than the norm at the time. But then again, a lot of other people, and he talks about, you know, being a genius or being having a different religion or being artistic or being sensitive in different ways, these also created you to be an outlaw based on the norms of the English society. I can't remember where I was going with that point. But, yes, I found the martyrdom aspect of this book really hard to stomach at times. Yeah, no, I, I can I can understand that. I think it's a little heavy-handed. I mean, you could compare it to Camus' The Outsider, The Stranger, uh, because, in a sense, the exact same thing happens there. The character feels that he is being persecuted for being of a different view. Um, but it's possibly done... Uh, with a lighter touch than than Hall uses. I would say about Connolly's review. For Camus, before we go to Connolly, for Camus, The Outsider, I know he wrote multiple books trying to explore this topic. Was The Outsider his kind of the pinnacle of what he was trying to achieve in that sense or was it the other one that he wrote? Oh, I mean, The Outsider is generally considered to be his uh, masterpiece, also known as The Stranger, folks. Um, so just yeah. to avoid that confusion. He uh, he wrote an earlier version of it called A Happy Death, um, which yeah. he didn't, like he basically scrapped it and, uh, and, and then began again and came up with The Outsider. Um, you can get a happy death. It is. It has been published. It's very interesting to read the two together as an exercise in trying to understand why one very good book was rejected in favour of what became you know, a twentieth century masterpiece. I would just take. Uh, I would take exception to some of the stuff Cyril Connolly said. I think it is true. It is a joyless book. It, it is just all tragedy. It has some very sweet moments and some very tender moments and some very human moments. So I don't think it's like tremendously unpleasant to read, but it is it is a sad book with just sort of tragedies following tragedies. And I think that is a fair criticism of it. But Connolly says, you know, the invert will be accepted into society kind of as long as they stay in their lane, I think is what he's saying. I mean, it's not true. Like, uh, Men that were found to be homosexual were imprisoned in the UK at the time. You know, they, they were absolutely persecuted. Uh, for some reason, it wasn't seen as a, a crime that a person could be jailed for when it was between women. Uh, and, you know, some critics have suggested that in a way, 
Hall wanted to get across the idea that homosexuality in women was as serious a thing as it is between men, almost sort of saying, hey, why aren't you arresting us? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, so I don't, I, I think the persecution was and to some extent still is real. And uh, so the martyrdom aspect particularly when we're talking about a very religious writer and Hall was a very religious person. It's not a massive shock to me. Uh, And it it does, it does fit a, 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 a template that other writers have explored like Camus. I, I just think that perhaps the book doesn't quite, I think the book maybe rushes at martyrdom a little too much head on. And you're right, you know, the, the thing about calling the main character Stephen would be fine, I think, if the concept of martyrdom wasn't so explicit. I think you could almost you could almost have that slip through and not notice or notice years later and go, ooh, that's clever. But because it's it's so in your face, uh, it is it is hard not to find it heavy-handed, which I think it is, but nevertheless. Connolly's right, this book did pave the way for other possibly better books, certainly more complete books. Um, but, you know, if we're going to, like, if you think of something, say, like 120 Days of Sodom, I'm not comparing the subject matters here, but 120 Days of Sodom, <laughs> you know, the first third was complete and then the the last two books of that were uh, completely skeletal. The, the final third was just ideas. Uh, now, I don't. I don't recommend 120 Days of Sodom to anyone. Actually, uh, it's it's a pretty upsetting book, um, and I think it really does actually lack a huge amount of merit uh, as a piece of literature. Uh, the writing is is not brilliant, and I think one of the odd things about Dassard, when because when you think about someone like Dassard, you know, he's a libertine. He was. Uh, supposedly, you know, sort of almost a manifestation of the devil in literature. Uh, his work's actually very boring and <laughs> extremely repetitive. It's still considered an important classic book. So I think if we can extend that to that book, uh, and I just certainly I do understand that it has a place in history that is important, then I don't see why the same can't be said of Radcliffe Hall. I think that is a good point to make and, yeah, you're right. It it does have literary merit and back to the point, a uh, question of should this be a book in school? Yes, try getting that past a lot of the American uh, libraries and the current climate over there in terms of book bans. But there are fantastic moments in the book and they shouldn't be forgotten for the parts that needed work or needed editing. Uh, what were your favourite parts of the book? And you actually mentioned that Brockett was your favourite character. Puddle was mm. my favourite character. And Puddle is, for the listeners, she's the teacher of Stephen and is her support and rock throughout a lot of her kind of, I would say, early adult years. Yeah, well, Puddle, I mean, and this is a good point, Puddle and Brockett and uh, and other characters including sort of the less likable characters like Angela, they are they're characters with a lot of life and energy in them. So when the book is is described as being sort of uh, joyless, I don't I don't think you can really make that case when you look at many of the secondary characters who many of whom are well fleshed out and are engaging and are likable or or indeed quite unlikable, but in a, in a way that engages you. And yeah, I, I think it's a book that I, I do think that people, in a sense, see themselves reflected in this book. Um, and, in, and in fact, there is an interesting review. I wasn't going to read any reviews. Oh, is this the Leonard I'll, Wolf one? No, uh, Leonard Wolf's is interesting in that um, – it seems very reasonable, but it's also uh, Wolf is in a sense making an argument for the way his his wife writes, and sort of essentially saying that is how good writing is done, 
and this book doesn't do that, so therefore it's it's not great writing. Um, it's all very very sneaky, really. Um, but this, I think, is interesting. Right, so yeah, so tiny bit of a review. This one's by L.P. Hartley. It was in the Saturday Review in July of 1928. Uh, And Hartley writes, The Well of Loneliness is a study of abnormal relationships between women. Miss Radcliffe Hall insists on this throughout with the greatest frankness, and those to whom such a subject is abhorrent would do well to leave the book alone. Many tender, romantic, and innocent friendships would turn to loathing and self-loathing did they for an instant see themselves in the mirror which Miss Radcliffe Hall so unflinchingly holds up to this tormented province of the human passions. Uh, now, I don't know if that's oh true, but I do think that there is, uh, you know, people often project into, the, into books and, you know, right now there is uh, a fair bit of discussion about whether uh, The Well of Loneliness is in fact um, a lesbian novel or if it isn't actually a transgender novel. Uh, and really, you know, ultimately all books uh, become in large part uh, what their readers decide they are. One of the things I found very strange about contemporary reviews is the way uh, a lot of contemporary reviewers will come in with a very clear sort of worldview that they're applying to the book and somehow the book manages to reflect that either, uh, you know, neatly or badly. And obviously if it reflects it badly, it's a bad book. Um, Another thing that I think is very odd about the reviews you read today are that they imagine that they are saying something new and modern and that, you know, people back in the 20s couldn't have this degree of insight. And, of course, if you read the reviews that were published at the time, everything people say today was being said by those reviewers, Uh, such as, for example, that the book is just a series of tragedies and it makes homosexuality seem like a curse. Well, that's exactly what the reviewers said at the time, or at least some of the reviewers. The idea that... um, that Stephen, as an embodiment of uh, a truly lesbian woman, is is kind of heavy-handed, and the idea that masculinity is so clearly defined as a thing, and that there's no sort of spectrum of the masculine and feminine across all of society, that criticism was made at the time. The book is criticised for being very chaste. Um, and it was also criticized at the time its chasteness was sneaky because it isn't scandalous because the book doesn't try to be in any way um, salacious or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a book about trying to make uh, homosexuality, you know, quote unquote respectable and to bring it into what was very much a whole province of, of conservative English upper middle class life. Um, you know, this is all part of its its sneakiness. And it's and inevitably people will see these things on uh in multiple ways on multiple levels. And and you know, the agenda of the reader, which is always there. And I mean I, I know I have an agenda when I read anything. It's you know the Gareth agenda. Uh it's there, but it's interesting that, you know, there is a sort of a sense and I think it's very much true. You've got to remember that that Hall also had a had a position, and it did not encompass all positions, and no one's ever does. So, in the ways that the book maybe is quite doer, or uh, you know, does raise martyrdom as a concept, or does have a very narrow view of homosexuality or uh, human sexuality broadly. These are jumping off points for readers. One can go, well, I don't agree with that, or I see the flaw in that, and that's actually quite fine. It isn't actually a flaw in the book. In the same way that, you know, I mean, people have said that, you know, Radcliffe Hall was problematic because she supported Mussolini. Well, you know, Radcliffe Hall was a conservative. And, you know, back then, uh, between the two 
uh, world wars, you know, people had a very different view of fascism to the view we have of it now. Uh, you know, it was extremely tolerated in England for starters. Uh, you know, um, the the King of England, uh, the Prime Minister Chamberlain, they they were pretty warm on Hitler, frankly. Uh, you know, it was only when you know, things started to get a bit close for comfort that people started having a more uh, nuanced view of fascism. It, you know, and, and I think that's something to keep in mind. So Hall was very representative of her of her class and position in society and also views of the time. And uh, so in that sense, things have changed a bit. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you could apply this to lots of writers, you know, I mean, uh, and, and indeed we've talked about how, you know, writers like Mark Twain are getting, uh, you know, edited uh, so that they're more acceptable to today's uh, sensibilities. And, and it's quite dangerous, actually, because we do need to know the difference between the past and the present and to recognize that some values were different, but certainly uh thoughtful reviews of this book have not changed since 1928. You've got a whole spectrum of these reviews, and they're very similar to what people say today. In my opinion, the only one that's really justified, the thing that really hurts this book, is that Radcliffe Hall was, in a sense, trying to change hearts and minds, and she made artistic decisions based on an extra agenda that she had, uh, which is always dangerous in art. And so one of the things she did is she took out all the romance and all the, all the sex in the book. So it is incredibly chaste and it is a bit loveless and it is hard to understand the, the torment that Stephen feels around Mary E. Lewin because a big chunk of their relationship is not described it's just, you know, they spent the evening together and were not part of that kind of stuff. It's, it, it lacks a little something. Um, but the one thing I really wanted to share this, this podcast was that um, uh, Radcliffe Hall did actually write some other scenes uh, and she took them out because she didn't want the book to be too scandalous. Uh, which I think, you know, I think is a great shame. But there's a there's a terrific publication. It's called The World and Other Unpublished Works of Radcliffe Hall um, by uh, uh, Jana Funke. I think that's how you'd say it. Uh, and in amongst all these interesting bits of writing, we have a part of a short story called Melise, and it's very clear that Melise is an early version of the war section of The Well of Loneliness, and I'd like to read this because I think this is a section that if I was an editor, I'd be getting this back in the book. Uh, And so it begins, This then was the surging up of their love, having something fierce and urgent about it, as the terror and joy and blood of battle, as the thirst of a man who is lost in the desert as the fearful urge of creation to create even through sterile channels. They spoke very little, for the darkness was rent by intolerable noise and by sudden swift flashes that penetrated into even this, sorry, and by sudden swift flashes that penetrated even into this darkness between cracks in the wall-scarred brickwork. And something, perhaps this near presence of death, seemed to quicken their bodies into agonised loving, so that they felt the throb of their bodies in each separate nerve and muscle and fibre, so that they ceased to be two poor atoms and became one transient imperative being, having reason for neither good nor evil, the primitive age-blind life force. Came a bell for a few deceptive seconds while the guns were gathering fresh strength for slaughter, and Melise whispered, tightening her arms, "'Tell me, are you afraid now, Pamela?' She heard the girl laugh very softly, as a mother will sometimes laugh at the question of a child, and the hand that reached to her face was quite steady, and the voice, when it came, was mature with new wisdom, a little amused, a little reproachful. No, I am not afraid. 
Then Melise heard her own heart throbbing loudly with a pride that was almost too great for its hearing. And she said, you'll never be frightened anymore because you're part of me. When the dawn came in, it found them together, still clasped in each other's arms, and their cheeks and their lips were white as marble, only their eyes still burned with the fire of that strange and agonizing night of passion. And that's what, in my opinion, the book needs. It needs more strange and agonizing nights of passion, but that would have made it harder to get to get it published. So what do you do? What do you do? Because that scene, if that had been, as we said, book four, which covers the war and meeting Mary, is very skeletal. If that had been in there, you would have fleshed out that chap, well, that book beautifully. And that explains this connection between Mary and Stephen because essentially what happens after the war, Mary follows Stephen around like a lost puppy and we don't get that emotional sense of this connection, this beautiful connection between these two people. Yeah, it really jumps, doesn't it? Yeah. Just suddenly happening. And the only other, yeah, sex scene I suppose that you get is when they go away to, oh, are they, like somewhere in the Canary Islands or some island? Um, And that's the only other scene that you actually get, oh, there's actually a physical attraction for from Mary for Stephen because besides that it's not really it just kind of seems like a mother-daughter relationship you need to protect me and look after me whereas if you had those pieces the agonizing ending of book five would have been far more powerful we would have felt the tearing away of Mary by Martin a lot more as a reader yeah and I mean when you think about so you've got all these flashes got these explosions if you look at the end of the book it does feel like there's flames, that there's, uh, you know, carnage going on. It, it's almost a reflection of that scene I just read. And there were others. Uh, and, yeah, I think essentially what happened is Radcliffe Hall certainly did edit the book herself many times and she just pulled out stuff that she thought would offend people or would offend them unnecessarily. And... They weren't always good artistic decisions, but, you know, she was in a really difficult space and she was banned and she hasn't been promoted as an important writer. She is off to the side. I've mentioned Radcliffe Hall to so many people and they go, who? Uh, And maybe she's not as good a writer as Virginia Woolf, but she's not nearly as far down as some people would have her. And she wrote a very direct book in many ways. It was chaste, but it was still direct. Um, and, yeah, I think it's I think it was an incredibly important book, a very difficult book, a deeply flawed book. Uh, but it's one that deserves, I think, to be read and, and uh, appreciated, particularly when there is all this other um, – other information that you can get. You can get some early drafts and see the choices she made. And, again, they're not necessarily good choices, but you could see what the book could have been. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we, we do appreciate works that are not uh, complete. Uh, you know, like, I'm a great fan of Big Star's third album, and that's, you know, that's a mess. Uh, but you can see all these bits that could have come together and that could be very interesting as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And also you mentioned Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf at around the same time in 1928 released Orlando, a biography, which kind of followed a male character who changed his sex a bit later on, um, I find that to be quite harsh when these two authors are compared because Virginia Woolf, that book was a modernist novel, whereas Hall's style is realism. It's like comparing oranges and apples, and I find that really unfair. And I think it is a shame that this book is not considered part of the queer canon, and we were talking about all those reviews, and it's because this book, shows inversion to be a curse but that is not taking in 
which I suppose at the time it was. It was a terrible burden for someone like Stephen or someone like Radcliffe Hall and just kind of ignoring the past that this book was written in is a real shame and I do think it should be included as part of uh, the queer canon. Yeah, I mean, I would go further and say, because it is, it is a disputed entrant in the queer canon. Oh, it's, and it's, beyond it's queer very... canon as well, I think Radcliffe Hall should be way more well noted than she is. Yeah, that that would be my position. Uh, you know, lots and lots of books. Um, I mean, you know, if you've ever tried to read Mole Flanders, what a nightmare. Uh, such a boring book. Uh, but it's considered a classic. It's not a perfect book. It's not nearly as good a book as, say, Robinson Crusoe by the same author. Um, yeah, I just think we've got to cut this lady some slack. I think I think she produced a really important work and, and big chunks of it I think are really engaging. Um, I love her relationship with animals. Now, at the time, there was some, you know, tittering and ridicule of this. But honestly, someone as lonely as as the character of Stephen Gordon is, that connection with animals, that uh, humanizing of them, the belief that they were having conversations, I think that's both beautiful and really sad. Uh, I don't think it's silly at all. Uh, you know, and again, and I think people maybe respond to these things based on the idea, you know, what, how will I be seen if I say, I think this is good. And certainly enough big names have said Radcliffe Hall is a bad writer that one does feel this pressure. You know, I think to myself, well, I'm going to go on record and say, she's not a bad writer. I think she's actually a very good writer. So what do you think of that? And, uh, you know, it brings into into question whose tastes, uh, you know, who has the most taste, who has the the discernment in this, and the judgment. Uh, and and I think she has this big pile of that behind her now, of, of sort of ridicule and, and complexity, and you know she's problematic. So I hope you know, in a tiny way, this this uh, this podcast, you know, just edges it back around because it is it is a really important book um i i don't think anyone would regret reading it i know jeanette winterson who uh you know has been very critical of the well of loneliness she compares it to orlando uh back in 2008 i think she read an article saying one was a masterpiece the other was dross uh but later in a Guardian article I read, she actually uh, says that The Well of Loneliness is the book that made her realize it was okay to be gay. That seems like a, oh, a, a very significant thing. Um, you know, and, and it also made her realize that there were better books. There could be better books in the same space. And, and that's right. There are better books, but hers was first. And and a really difficult thing to do. And your comment on reading this book without taking all the garbage of the reviews beforehand reminds me of a Tatler review. Um, I think it's Richard King from memory. The Well of Loneliness yeah. is a very difficult work to review. Should I praise it? Then I can literally hear the huge army of the narrow-minded hinting that I am in sympathy with its publication. Should, on the other hand, I dismiss it as a novel written on a subject which is unmentionable, then I should condemn a work of considerable art, a story which is poignantly tragic to a degree, one of the few books I've ever read which illustrates the pitiful loneliness of sexual perversity as it is, apart from the pervert's psychological and biological significance. And I'll just end the review there. But it's, yeah, just based praise this book if you think it is worthy of praise and condemn it if you think it's worthy of condemnation but don't take all the past and then apply it onto your reading as well as just reading the book and I suppose wrapping up I would give this book a four stars out of five um what about you Gareth yeah it's a it's a flawed book there's no question it it doesn't it's, it's not one of the great masterworks of English literature, but it's an important book. 
and and I think it is a classic. And I think four stars is is right on the money. And you know, if you haven't read it, give it a go. It's it, it is worth reading. It is it is not a joyless experience at all. I don't think. Yeah, and、uh, should I start the drum roll for the next book? The next book, yes. It is. Oh, oh I was hit myself in the face. It is Revenge <laughs>、uh, by Yoko Ogawa.、Uh, now, I find this to be an incredible book.、Uh, Hilary Mantel, I note on the back, says it's original, elegant. And very disturbing. It is all of those things.、Um, uh, Yoko Ogawa is my favourite author,、uh, and I think the author that I I most channel in, in my own work, or try to channel in my own work. I, I find her style,、uh, and keep in mind this is in translation. I find her style to be the the version of writing that I am most in tune with.、Um, Now, Revenge is really interesting because it's a collection of short stories that tie together in very small ways、uh, that build up to something. I, it's not quite a fix-up novel. It's definitely a collection of short stories, but it's an amazing collection of short stories. I say, amazing. So,、uh, yes, go and get yourself a copy of this in about a month or so, depending on IT issues and so forth. We'll have another episode up.、Uh, About revenge, and I think everyone's going to be very pleased with this book. Well, everyone, rush out and buy a copy of Revenge by Yoko Ogawa. I rate her very, very highly. She's one of my favorite authors, as well as Gareth. And you can't go wrong with a Gareth recommendation. And until next time, on the pleasure of the text. Yes, don't forget, folks, to like, subscribe, hit the bells, do all that stuff. It's it's actually very helpful to us. If you thought this review was terrible, get on the comments and say you know how awful it was.、Uh, wish Shannon a happy birthday, my goodness.、Uh, but yeah, do all those things because apparently it helps、uh, something. And you know we need all the help we can get. So do all those things.、Uh, happy birthday, Shannon! And we'll、I'm、see you all in a couple more weeks. I'm just imagining the comments. We hate your podcast. Happy birthday, Shannon. <laughs> That would be perfect. See how many of those we can get. Yeah, awesome sauce. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm off for birthday celebrations, and we'll see everyone later. Ta-da.